Environmentalism has a long history of failed prophecies. This should be fun. This is why history is so important. Because if we're going to trust the science, we need to look back and see what is the track record of the science. It's kind of like what they do with witnesses in court, right? Kind of look back and go, who is this guy? Where did they come from? Have they ever told lies before? Especially, have they ever told lies on the stand before? Have things they've said come true? And if not, they're not a reliable witness, right? They're not a true prophet. They're not speaking truth to us. All right, so I want to name a few. There have been predictions of famines by 1975. The Salt Lake Tribune, November 17th, 1967, said this. It is already too late for the world to avoid a long period of famine. A Stanford University biologist said Thursday, Paul Ehrlich, I don't know how to say his name, but he's a very famous climate scientist uh, who believes this stuff. He said that the time of famines is upon us and will be at its worst and most disastrous by 1975. Did it happen? I wasn't around. I was born in 79, so I wasn't around. Did it happen? I don't think it did. My parents didn't tell me about it anyways. Here's the next one. Uh, let's see, predictions of ice ages. Anybody seen those movies? Uh, think it's coming back? You're going to see a squirrel chasing the nut for a while? Huh? Let's see, Boston Globe, Thursday, April 16th, 1970. Air pollution may obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the next century. Next century. That would be now, right? I think. Third of the next century. If population continues to grow and the Earth's resources are consumed at the present rate, a pollution expert predicted yesterday. James P. Lodge Jr. also warned that if the current rate of increase in electric power generation continues the current increase, the demands for cooling water will boil dry the entire flow of the rivers and streams of continental United States. Again, if power generation increases, the demands for cooling water will boil dry the entire flow of rivers and streams of continental United States. I think, was that the Great Lakes? Has anyone been around Lake Erie lately? Is there any water in it still? I'm just checking. There was actually a prediction. I think one of the most extreme was that, and yet it was still, it was still published in newspaper, that uh, people would begin evaporating in blue steam at one point. All right, let's see. Uh, more. Oh, you know what? I have another one, Ice Age. Time Magazine, June 24th, 1974. I still wasn't born yet. As they review the bizarre and unpredictable weather pattern of the last several years, a growing number of scientists are beginning to suspect that many seemingly contradictory meteorological fluctuations are actually part of a global climatic upheaval. However widely the weather varies from place to place and time to time, when meteorologists take an an average of temperatures around the globe, they find that the atmosphere has been growing gradually cooler for the past three decades. The trend shows no indication of reversing. What? Did you hear that? So all the panic right now about things getting warmer and warmer, and I think we 
heard it. Four degrees. When we reach four degrees, it's the end of humanity. The world will not even, according to the activists, the world will not even be able to inhabit 500 million people. But in 1974, they were worried that the cooling would continue and would not stop until we had another ice age. Okay, let's see. Oh, the Maldives, here they are again. They're going to disappear. Uh, 1988, the Canberra Times, Monday, September 26th. A gradual rise in average sea level is threatening to completely cover this Indian Ocean nation of 1,196 small islands within the next 30 years, according to authorities. But the end of the Maldives and its 200,000 people could come sooner if drinking water supplies dry up by 1992, as predicted. Last I checked, they're still there. Hasn't happened yet. Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, the IPPC, IPCC, pardon me, uh, gave a number of retractions in 2007. One of them was the claim that the Himalayan glaciers would melt by 2035, which is a uh, central water source for a lot of people in that area of the world. Turned out to be a claim from an advocacy group, the World Wildlife Fund, rather than scientists. Uh, so they retracted it. The IPCC also retracted in 2007 that 40% of Amazonian, Amazonian rainforests are at risk of destruction, which again, they retracted because it was another World Wildlife Fund claim rather than a scientific claim. Well, that's interesting. There's a lot going on there, uh, but that's enough. And that's only a little, little snippet. I, there were many others. There were some about their concerns about acid rain, that we're going to kill all the fish in the Great Lakes and so on. And, and then 10 years later, they came back and said, well, I guess acid rain's not the, the, the crisis, that's what they call it. It's not the crisis that I th we thought it was going to be and so on. I want to also make us aware of the fact that environmentalism is about more than the environment. It is about social justice. Yes, it's connected. There are people that have written papers to suggest that deniers, climate deniers, are white supremacists. They just want to keep their capitalistic, patriarchal, oppressive control over Western capitalism. Right? The next one in economics, you heard it already, and I know from a high school teacher in a high school near you uh, who claimed in front of her class uh, that she was very hopeful that it would be climate change that would actually finally take down capitalism. Uh, very, very hopeful. I, just, I was a bit surprised that she was being that explicit in her classroom about how hopeful she was that that would be the case, but she was. And uh, they're getting very bold in these statements. But yes, they're hoping that it will cripple the economy and so on, but guess what? It's going to be a free market society and innovations that will always be adapting to weather patterns and so on as long as we're here and Jesus hasn't come back. That's always been the case. Everything they predicted, it's been false. Many times it's been false because of new inventions, new technologies that come out that overcome challenges that were there in the past. And it will be that way moving forward if people still have the freedom to innovate and the motivation to do so as well, the financial motivation to do so. That doesn't happen in communism. So in their quest for communism and socialism, they are actually going to destroy the environment. 
It's very interesting how in all of this, ironically, the ones who are seeking to save it are actually going to destroy it by their methods and by their plans and by their solutions. Population control, this is a big one. And this is where I said earlier that the family ties into the environment. This is a lot of these activists come from a worldview that says that we are no different than bacterial cells and that we should not in any way rule over uh, the environment or nature. It's man against nature, right? We're pitted against each other. And of course, we're like parasites. We just live off of the, the poor old victim of nature, right? It's the oppressed. We're the oppressors as human beings. And anyone who has children is just being selfish. That's all you're being. In fact, if uh, I can back this up, there's a, an article that was written in the Daily Mail a number of years ago. Uh, and in it, they, they, it was talking about women who won't have babies because they are not eco-friendly. Babies are not eco-friendly. I can attest to that. I think that's true, actually. I think that might be true. But this is what they said. Having children is selfish. It's all about maintaining your genetic line at the expense of the planet. How dare you? I added the how dare you part. Every person who is born uses more food, more water, more land, more fossil fuels, more trees, and produces more rubbish, more pollution, more greenhouse gases, and adds to the problem of overpopulation. In fact, uh, there was a professor back in 2006, Eric Pianca, who received an award at the University of, it was in Texas, I think in my University of Dallas, not quite sure, but in his speech, he talked about this whole idea of overpopulation and humans have, are, are going to destroy the world if we get to a certain amount. And he actually spoke of being hopeful. Of course, I watched some interviews of him afterwards in which he said, I didn't say that. I just said, I was warning people. Humans should be very, very careful about populating the earth because he was talking about a virus that might come along and kill off a vast, a fast moving virus, I think he called it, and kill off a vast majority of the world's population in time. That got my interest. That got my attention pretty quick when I read about uh, Bianca's warning in 2006, but it wasn't, it wasn't just a warning. The whole crowd that was there stood and applauded that. The idea of humanity being basically wiped out so that nature can thrive. The whole man versus nature. Well, I, I, again, I'm going to move a bit quicker because we do need to get into scriptural answers to this. But I do want to just notice the hypocrisy behind it as well. I gave, I gave Greta Thunberg some credit here. There are others we need to give some an opposite quality of credit to. And of course, private jets are troublesome for some of these climate change prophets. Uh, in fact, there were 400 plus private jets that flew into Scotland for the recent climate change conference, COP26. That's laughable if it isn't so sad. Like, you really believe this? Private jets have to be one of the most inefficient vehicles on the earth 
And uh, men like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Arnold Schwarzenegger all flew in in their private jets. Of course, Al Gore denies that he has a private jet and says that he flies Southwest. So that's good. That's a benefit. So we'll give that one to Al Gore. We won't talk about his mansion uh, and how much power is produced there. But we will talk about oceanfront properties. I want to show you, uh, first of all, let me just read you a quote. Okay, here's a quote from a climate science prophet. Here it is. No nation, however large or small, wealthy or poor, can escape the impact of climate change. Rising sea levels threaten every coastline. More powerful storms and floods threaten every continent. Guess who said that? That was President Obama. I don't know what year he said it, but 10 years later, he went and he purchased this. Uh, see anything strange in that picture after saying rising sea levels threaten every coastline? Do you really believe it? You spent $15 million on this home in Martha's Vineyard. I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion. It's just like during all the virus threats and everything, politicians that were leaving and going to Florida and going all over the place. It's not just that they were doing it when others, they were telling others not to. That's, that's bad, yes. But there's something behind it that says, you know it's a fraud. You don't believe it yourself. When I see this, I go, you can buy a house. I'm glad. I'm happy for you. If you have that kind of money, I'm happy for you. You bought a house. It's nice. Maybe someday you'll invite me over for dinner. Wouldn't that be great? I doubt it. I doubt it'll happen. But that's great. You bought a house. I have no problem with that. But you don't believe what you said. And now neither do I. I'm having a hard time believing it after seeing this. Say one thing and do another. The world is ending, but then maybe it's not. Uh, real world problems. At the, at the, you know, climate change has taken over the attention of world leaders. And meanwhile, in the Congo, Rwanda has been mining mi minerals in the Congo, distracting, causing distractions on the other side of the Congo uh, through wars and everything while they are continually stealing minerals out of their neighboring country. And all this is going on and nobody's saying anything about it. And you have people in the Congo who are starving and living in poverty, abject poverty. And we could send some tractors and get some technology for them and help them to produce crops. And they, they have actually become a very... Uh, much wealthier than they were, except for the fact that they have no money to show for it because it's all being stolen away from them. But we have this all over the world. Problems are being ignored, vast problems. In the name of, if you ignore climate change, you're being selfish. And then, of course, we have ClimateGate. Very quickly, in November 2009, a collection of emails, data files, and data processing programs were all leaked to the public from the University of East Anglia Climactic Research Unit in the UK, United Kingdom. The leaked material exposed the scientists pushing global warming theory. They were guilty of scientific fraud and manipulating data. This evidence included a thousand plus emails, documents, and computer code about how these models that they generate come to conclude that the world is ending. ClimateGate revealed 
the biggest scientific hoax in world history and the worst scandal of modern times. Well, maybe that's not true anymore. I think we've seen a worse one recently. Why don't they give up? Well, they don't give up because there's a lot of money in this. Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Environmental Defense Fund, all these taking billions of dollars from governments and taxpayers. Climate scares create large amounts of income. That's why I didn't show it, but at the beginning of that interview, uh, there, was a, there was a bit of a discussion about who's paying you. The interviewer is asking the activist, who's paying you? How many of the people that are doing these things are being paid? And meanwhile, you're holding other people from getting to their jobs and feeding their families. Well, you folks who are being paid are disrupting their lives. Who's paying you? There's money involved. There's power involved. Obviously, that's why the politicians are in this. The government just gets bigger as they gain more control. If they can just convince you that this is true so that you live in fear, hopelessness and anxiety. All of this, the, the, the alarmist uh, amplification is just getting louder and louder and louder. These sincere believers, they are sincere believers due to books and movies and media. Hollywood loves this kind of end of, end of the world theme, right? The material world is all that they have. There's a hopelessness and anxiety to it. And there's an adherence to religious belief system. It gives them purpose. We're saving the world. We're doing our penance. We're doing our good works. It gives hero status to its saints. Like Greta Thunberg, right? She's a hero to so many people. Look at her. And meanwhile, she thinks her life is ruined and so on. Anyways, uh, and by the way, is any of this being effective with people? Yes, it is. The end result, the masses are buying it. In September 2019, an international survey by YouGov found that 48% of people from all over the world believe climate change will make humanity extinct. Like, that's a really extreme statement. But 48% from all over the world, a worldwide majority, believe humanity is at least partly responsible. That's where we're at. That's the world we're living in. That's the culture we're living in. It's around us. It may not be to this extreme around us. You might not be living next to an activist, uh, but you may be living to, next to someone who believes this and lives in this kind of fear. You may cross paths with them. You may work with them. And uh, I've seen this uh, interacting just with neighbors and um, how do you speak to them? We'll get into that in a little bit, but I do want to... Uh, give an answer as to how Scripture handles these things. All, throughout all of these sessions, I want to make it clear that we're not disagreeing that there's a problem. Like when it comes to critical race theory, we're not disagreeing that racism is not a problem. We're not saying that. But we differ in the diagnosis of the root cause of the problem and we also, therefore, differ in the solution to the problem. And there may be other details in there, but I want to make this clear. We're not saying because we're against big government that we're against government or that somehow government itself is the problem, so we need to eradicate government. We're not saying that, right? 
But through all of these, the gospel spells out the root cause of racism, of the sexual revolution, of government getting out of its sphere and spheres of authority, of the family and family disruptions. The root cause is not cultural Marxism, although that has been a tool that Satan has used. And we've looked at that in nights gone by. We've made that, hopefully we're quite familiar at this point with the Frankfurt School and how a lot of this has come out of that. We understand that, but that's not the root cause. The root cause is in your heart and it's in mine. And until we understand that, we will not be effective witnesses to our world. We will always be at a level above looking down and speaking down to people. But when I understand the problem of selfishness and sin and rebellion against God was rooted in my heart at birth, at conception, that it was already there and that I needed to be justified by a savior. And that's the solution. Until I understand that, I will not be an effective witness. I won't be an effective witness. So I want to make that clear tonight and uh, as we move forward with a biblical worldview and how we tackle the problem of the environment. It's clear that the doom and gloom signaling of climate change warnings is intended for evil purposes by Satan himself. First of all, I'm not suggesting everyone behind it is evil, but Satan definitely has evil intentions involved. He wants everybody distracted. He wants everyone's lives ruined and looking in the wrong places for solutions. He wants everyone looking to everyone else as the problem, not in here. Meanwhile, God's word, what, what does it do? When we read God's word, we encounter Christ and it unveils what's going on inside my heart. That's the problem. It's like G.K. Chesterton when he wrote in to the newspaper that asked him for an essay on what's wrong with the world. And he wrote his essay back to them and said, Dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I am, the, I am what's wrong with the world. It's me. And that's why Jesus had to come and die for me. However, as Christians, let's be very careful. We don't knee-jerk to the other extreme where the environment doesn't matter at all. That is not Christian. That is not gospel-centered. We must demonstrate an authentic concern as stewards of God's creation. All right, so we're going to move through this. Piece by piece. First of all, nature begins with God. Most of what we looked at tonight begins with atheism, begins with the fact that nature was either always here or began with a big bang or began billions and billions of years ago and that we've all come out of the same ancestors and so on or the same amoeba that just grew out of the, I don't know, out of what? I don't know. I don't think scientists know. Uh, but nature begins with God. That's where we begin tonight like we have with every week. But first of all, God is separate. He's separate from his creation. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. God is not the world, the universe, right? God is not in the chair. No, he's, he's above it. He's outside it. He created it. It is something other. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light 
and there was light. Secondly, the creator uh, reflects, or the creation reflects the creator. Look at Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. This is also true in Romans 1, where Paul talks about his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. They've been clearly perceived. If we want to know what God is like, yes, the word of God is our primary source, but we can look around us in this world and see the wisdom of God. We can study nature. We can study the smallest of creatures and see the beauty of what God has done and how God has formed every living thing. Not only that, but he created a world and put natural resources into it for us to use. Gold, silver, minerals, copper, all of those things he has put into this world for us to use. Our society reflects a confusion Uh, Let's see if I have this here. Here it is. We have confused creator and creation, and this is where our problem begins. Because in in Romans 1, in verse 25, uh, right at the bottom, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They got it all mixed up. They started bowing to the creation. That's where scientists saying, basically, humans, you're nothing but parasites living off of nature. What are they doing? They're elevating nature and saying, yeah, humans can become extinct. That would actually be a good thing for nature, right? What are we doing? We're worshiping nature. We've brought nature above. We've elevated that. We've lost our true north. We've lost our understanding of what is ultimately good. And we're not unified around that anymore. Everyone's looking somewhere for their own God, their own thing to worship, their own deity, We've confused it. That's the fundamental problem with apocalyptic environmentalism. This whole idea, everything's going to crash and burn, begins on a foundation of worshiping what has been created rather than who created it. So we deny atheism, the idea that no one made it. We also deny pantheism, the idea that everything is God. We deny panentheism, which is the idea that God is to the universe what the soul is to the body. So he kind of keeps everything moving. He's kind of like the engine that keeps it running. We deny animism, the idea that many gods that indwell animate physical objects. Right? The idea is that, you know, the cow out in the field might be a deity that you should not harm, you should not touch, and so on. We deny all of those. God is outside of his creation. He created it and it reflects his glory. Uh, The one who created it, here's the next one. The one who created it also sustains it. We need to remember this as we face the false prophets who talk about climate change. Wait a second. The one who created it didn't walk away from it. That's what the deists used to say. He created it and now he doesn't care about it. He's moved on to other things. That's not really around anymore. Deism has been completely replaced at this point. But no, the one who created it is still here. We heard about this. Pastor Aaron was talking about this on Sunday. He's still sustaining it. Look at Colossians 1, 
Again, this was read on Sunday. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Here's another one, just in, ca- just in case that's not enough. Hebrews 1.3, he, Jesus, who is God, is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to see God's beauty and God's majesty and God's glory? Look at Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's beautiful. And we have every reason to thank him for the sun rising and the sun setting every single day. He does it again and again and again. And the seasons come and they come again and they come again. And the world just keeps turning. It's tilted on its, what is it? 23 degrees or something like that. Something like that. It's tilted beautifully and it's just revolving around the sun and it's doing the same thing. How is it doing it? By the word of his power. He is actively involved at all moments, sustaining his creation, maintaining it. And we're stressing ourselves out like it's up to us. It's all up to us to maintain all of this. And scripture comes back and says, no, it's not. It's God that sustains it. It's Jesus Christ who sustains all of creation. Peter tells us, therefore, to trust our souls to a faithful creator. Why would he tell us that? The implication is that God is intimately involved in the smallest details of his world. 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I just started in my daily devotions in the book of Job. And you know how the story of Job ends with Job, again, just wondering how could all these horrible things happen to him? And they were horrific things that happened to him. But in the end, what does God do? He reveals himself as that faithful creator who's still sustaining his creation. He's still sustaining it. Job, do you have any clue why I do this or do this or do this, do this? And every time, he doesn't wait for Job to answer because Job doesn't have an answer. There's nothing he's going to say. In fact, finally, Job just says, I repent. I'm not going to fight anymore. Yeah, you are God and you are wise and everything you're doing, I have no idea what it is, but I know it's good, even if it doesn't look like it's good. He's sustaining it. Next, humans are the same but different. Now, I don't, I'm not talking human to human. I'm talking human to the rest of creation. Now, this is important. Psalm 8, David said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor and you have given to him, that is to humanity, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So this idea of humans versus nature is not true. First of all, we share in common with nature, the fact that we are created beings, just like everything else in nature. We're all created by the same creator. We share that in common. That should give us a level of respect for the environment around us and how we treat it. That's why we treat our pets with care. We don't abuse our pets. 
We don't abuse animals. And we have to treat, we have to teach our kids that, right? Why? Because we all share in common the fact we've all been created by the same creator. That's absolutely true. Yet at the same time, we're different. We are marked different. We are set in dominion over creation. In fact, Genesis 1 is shaped that way to lead to the climax of chapter 1, Genesis 1, where God finally makes the man and puts him into this creation that he made. He's the pinnacle of creation. He's the very reason why it was all made in the first place. It's like the stage on which he places the player to play out the story, right? Creation is the stage. You see that all the way through Genesis 1. There's evidence of this. It's really hard for atheists not to see this. I think I told you on a, another night about a college friend of mine who at one point tried to prove to me that he was no different than the squirrel in the field. And yet he was sitting in a place of higher learning telling me this. Like, I don't know any squirrels that have built colleges or universities. I don't know of any, I don't know of any squirrels that have decided, you know what, a three-car garage would be a good thing. Why don't we innovate that? Why don't we, why don't, why don't we start making neighborhoods? They've been doing the same thing all along. Birds make nests. They always have, depending on what kind of bird it is. Fish swim in the sea. That's what they do, right? They may adapt to their environments and so on over time, but it doesn't matter. Birds are birds. Fish are fish. They do the same thing. Why? Because that's what God made them to do. They just continue to do it, but we're different. And it's pretty clear. It's pretty easy to teach kids this, right? Just, I remember I used to have an old beehive that I used to show the kids in when I was in kids ministry and, and show them and say, you know what these bees do? <laughs> they do an awesome thing. I can't do what they do. It's pretty amazing how they make honey and make these combs and, and incredible how they craft it all. But guess what? They've been doing this forever. They've been doing it as long as they've been bees. That's all they do. They don't stop doing that. But look at us. We're different, aren't we? Everything's always changing with us. We're always coming up with new, new solutions and new inventions and new things and always thinking, okay, I don't know any bees or dogs or, that are wondering, going around debating whether there's a God or not. The very fact that we debate whether there's a God is proof there is a God. Why else are you even thinking about it? We're different than the animals. It's very clear in scripture, again, just witnesses to reality. That's what it does. It just tells the truth. So there's a balance. We are the same, but we're different. We're the same in the fact we're created. We're different in the fact we've been set above creation. Uh, and there's Psalm 8. I had it there. Psalm 8, 3 to 8. I'm going to move on to the next one. Next one's very similar. There's a difference between dominion and domination. So climate scientists, maybe climate activists, shall we say, want to say that Human beings should not be dominating over nature, and that's what we're doing. You're just doing what you want with nature and so on. And as Christians, we would say, yeah, if that's the case, if we are abusing nature, that is absolutely true. We agree with you. I agree with you on this. But Genesis 1, when God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have, what's the word? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's a government word. Now, the Hebrew word radah uh, can mean, it can mean domination, but it doesn't in this context. There's no way that it can in this context. You see later on in Genesis 2 that the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. 
not to dominate it, not to abuse it. And what do you see Adam doing? He's naming all the creatures. He's discovering who they are and he's categorizing them, male and female. He's naming them all. He's looking at different plants in the garden and obviously he's tending them, he's keeping them. Domination is the idea of total control, that you can do what you want. Like an abusive husband who thinks that he can do what he wants with his wife. But that is not what God calls us to. He calls us to dominion, which is a stewardship word. A stewardship word, to lead, to rule, to govern. To govern with care, to govern with compassion. Psalm 115, 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. We have been entrusted with God's creation and he expects us to take care of it. The answer is not killing the economy. The answer is innovation, taking the raw materials that God has placed in this world for us to use and subduing them in ways that solve real world problems. So Jay Richards, the economist again said, the more human beings in free societies there are, the more inventors, producers, problem solvers, and creators there are to transform material resources and to create new resources. Well, that's good news. You heard in that interview, by the way, you heard the scientist actually say that he had been talking to uh, some people from the fossil fuel industry who basically said, yeah, we can come up with ways to go to zero emissions by 2050. And I don't doubt it's true with innovations they can meet these challenges over time, but guess what? You gotta have the freedom to do it. You have to have the freedom and the motivation to invent these things. And as long as it's done as a stewardship rather than worship, it's absolutely glorifying to God. We are to take care of the creation that he has entrusted to us. So God loaded the world, loaded the world with minerals, plants, animals, raw materials to reveal his glory and to draw out our praise. Do you know that when they first revealed or, or uh, discovered, sorry, oil from the ground, well, all of a sudden, the whales don't have to worry about being used for oil anymore. Isn't that nice? But again, a lot of this is ignored when it comes to these discussions about how certain minerals actually spare other parts of creation along the way. The environmentalist agenda is to return the earth to its natural origin, but that's misguided. That's not what God intended. He intends for us to subdue it. He intends for us to use it to reveal his glory and draw out our praise. Uh, next, having uh, children actually glorifies God. So again, back to that whole idea of overpopulation and the scare that comes out of that. You're destroying the world by having children. They're not eco-friendly. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth. You hear that? Doesn't sound like God's too worried about overpopulation. And in fact, over time, what technology has done, it's allowed us to produce more food. They've, I, a bunch of the reading that I've had over the, the past week or so has shown that the food supply is actually quite adequate to supply for much more population than we already have globally. 
Psalm 127, three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Culture's telling us childbearing is oppressive and selfish. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the attack on the family and what culture is saying about it. God tells us to be fruitful and childbearing is a great blessing from him and it brings glory to him when we lead our families. Raising children is actually a way to contribute to the world and to its problems because it's through the children of new generations of innovators that we will find new ways to solve these human problems through technology. Again, J. Richard, his quote that I just quoted, he says at the end of it about more inventors, producers, problem solvers, and so on, he says at the end of it, man, not matter, is the ultimate resource. So keep having children and teaching them, teaching them properly, educating them, showing them the beauty of the world that we live in and the potential that still lies in it until Christ returns. Next, I want to look at pollution for a minute and notice that biblical pollution is moral rather than environmental. Now, this is an area you'll never hear climate uh, scientists talk about or activists talk about. They don't quite care about moral pollution. But in Psalm 106, the land was polluted with murder. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Uh, let's see, here's another one. Polluted with adultery, Jeremiah 3, 1 to 3. Uh, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and he becomes another, and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you been ravished? By the waysides, you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom, which would have been not only a reference to physical adultery and immorality, but also to spiritual adultery because they had left their first love. They had left their spiritual husband, God himself. And of course, it was also polluted with idolatry. Jeremiah 16, but first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols. I'll tell you, I, we need to be far more concerned with the moral pollution in our land. Not at the expense of the fact that there, are physical, uh, there is physical pollution going on, but moral pollution, that is where God is deeply concerned obviously. And the judgment of God is waiting to fall. Uh, the next one, the source of the world's groaning is rebellion. Again, this goes to the moral pollution. We're getting to the heart of what the gospel says the problem is. Why is the world the way it is? Well, it could just be the natural cycles of creation and so on. It could be that the world is heaving from abuse the world is suffering under the consequences of human rebellion. 
Genesis 3, 17, what did God tell Adam? And this goes again back to, I think the first week we talked about when Adam and Eve died, God said, you eat of the tree, you're surely gonna die. When they died, they died in four ways, right? They died to God, they died to themselves, they died to each other, and they died to the world, creation. And this is the reference to their separation between them and the world. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The world is groaning because of our rebellion against God. And this environmental activism that says there is no God, we need to save the world, it's all up to us, is actually just increasing that groaning because it's increasing that rebellion. The rebellion is just getting louder as the false prophets continue to spread their gloom and doom message. All right. The present world is temporary. Here's the next one. The present world is temporary. 2 Peter 3 Verse 10 says, by the same word, the heavens and earth have now, uh, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there are a number of, views on this. I'll get to those in a minute, but the point at this point is that the present world is temporary. One way or the other, the world as it is today is not going to last. We know that. And the coming world is better. We already read Revelation 21. I'm not going to read it again, but I think it's clear when you read about the new heaven and the new earth, God recreating his universe restoring it. Many, there are different views on how that's going to take place. All I know is that when it happens, I'll know exactly how it's going to take place because it took place. But up till now, I'm not going to try and assume. But I know this, this world is temporary. The one that's coming is far better, infinitely better. All of these are just a, just a bit of a snapshot at what God has to say about nature, about the world, about the environment, where his concerns lie. His concerns lie far more in the pollution in your heart and in mind than anywhere else. And of course, that's why Christ came to die. He didn't come primarily to die to save the environment. He came to die to save your soul. That's what he came for. But... A byproduct of the gospel is the fact that through his redemption, he is going to redeem his creation. And the new world, the new heaven, the new earth is going to be undefiled by sin. Everyone on it has been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. They've been washed clean and there's no more sin. It's not allowed. It will not be there. If you're here tonight and you've never dealt with the problem of your sin, the pollution in your heart, it's time you repented and came to Christ. 
Come to Christ for mercy. He is merciful. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's what he came to do. If that's not you tonight, you need to prepare for the future by coming to Christ as your Savior, trusting in Him, bowing to Him as your Lord and King. Moving forward, uh, I just want to look at a few of the responses that we can give as a result of just moving through the biblical theme of nature. How do we respond to cultural false prophecies? How do we do it? I had a, I had a conversation with a, a fellow at a wedding a number of years ago uh, who I found out sitting across from him that he was an extreme environmentalist and I didn't know anything about the environment. But I knew the gospel. So all I could do is say uh, to him something to the effect of, do you, do you really believe the world's going to be around forever? I mean, what are you really trying to save? I'm not going to argue about you know, statistics and science and all that. And it actually led into um, a, a very productive conversation about what is really meaningful, what is really lasting, and what is beyond this world and beyond what, and he was pretty, at one point, he wasn't heated with me. He was heated, he, he was pretty heated with the guy that was sitting next to him that was very politically conservative. And uh, they were going back and forth for a while. I'm not, I don't, I'm not touching that. I don't know a whole lot about this subject, at least at the time I didn't. And, but I do know that this guy needs Jesus. Um, so it was, a, it was a very profitable conversation. I would say don't run from these conversations. Run into them. But don't run into them to get into the weeds of talking about rising sea levels and things like that. That's fun to know. It's good to see uh, that what these people are saying is not exactly true. Um, we do, in fact, that's the first thing I was going to say here. Beware of the evidence. We do need to be informed. We always need to be prepared, Peter says, to make a defense for anyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you. We do need to be informed. We don't need to be professionals. Don't need to be climatologists, is that what they're called? We don't need to be that. But to have some sense about where these people are coming from and, and some awareness. The whole point of these classes is not to become a f- professionals. The whole point of these classes is so that when you're at work, you can detect what's going on. When you're listening to the news, you can detect it and go, that's false, right? The whole point is to start detecting that and start bringing it out. And I've actually heard feedback from some of you that have said, you know, I'm starting to hear these words now. I never heard of intersectionality before, but now I know what it means and I'm hearing it and I can actually respond to it in some way, right? We need to know, be aware of the evidence. Secondly, understand environmentalism as a new religion. Understand it is a religion. Michael Schellenberger said, on the one hand, environmentalism and its sister religion, vegetarianism, appear to be a radical break from the Judeo-Christian religious tradition. In particular, environmentalists reject the view that humans have or should have dominion or control over the, over the earth. On the other hand, apocalyptic environmentalism is a kind of new Judeo-Christian religion, one that has replaced God with nature. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, 
Human problems stem from our failure to adjust ourselves to God. That's actually a fairly accurate statement from a guy I don't think is a Christian. Human problems stem from our failure to adjust ourselves to God. In other words, your personal sin against God, and we are default selfish. That's what we are. In the apocalyptic environmental tradition, human problems stem from our failure to adjust ourselves to nature. So what Schellenberger was pointing out was it is, it's, it's a religion. It's a lot like the Christian religion in many ways. It's very parallel, but very wrong. It places God with nature and therefore everything we do needs to adjust to nature. And that's what we saw in Romans 1. That's what Paul was talking about. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We have a new canon of scripture, scientific reports and data from the IPCC. We have new priests, right? We got to listen to the scientists. They're the new priests. They stand between us and nature and tell us what nature is saying we should be doing for it. And the new prophets, the media, the celebrities, the kids, the activists, they're all out there screaming doom and gloom if we don't do these things. It's a new religion. You got to, you got to, we need to recognize it that way. When we're up against someone like this or we're, we're, talking with someone like this or we're befriending someone like this, we have to understand this is where they worship. This is their place of worship and we need to somehow counter this with true worship in the one true God. So we need to be aware of that. And that probably leads to some other thinking and, uh, that we need to do about, okay, so what do I, well, it takes practice. What do I do if I'm in a conversation like this? It's gonna take some practice and probably a lot of blunders and that's fine. But again, as we said on the first session, on the first night, ask a lot of good questions. Just start asking them questions. All right, next, trust God who is still in control. He is still in control, folks. The climate scientists can say what they want, but God still sustains his world. He's still in control. I don't have time to go into that um, uh, with scripture, but we're gonna leave it there. Next, speak into the fear with good news. Yes, remember, there's a lot of fear here. And a lot of it for these people is sincere. They're sincerely wrong, but they're afraid. But we need to replace that with healthy fear, the fear of God, who they really have to meet someday. Healthy fear. And of course, John tells us there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's only the gospel that is going to replace the fear in their hearts with the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. Next, emphasize human value. Right back to the whole idea, we're the same but different. We're created, but we're not the rest of creation. There's human value that we have been made in the image of God. We've been given dominion over the world and nothing, nothing proves or gives evidence to the worth of humanity more than the cross of Jesus Christ. He didn't come to die for animals. He didn't come to die for anything else. He came to die for human beings who had sinned against him and rebelled against him. Next, the world is not our forever home. Please remember this. Again, there are two ways Christians view eschatology and last things. Either the earth is to remain and be transformed or the earth is to be destroyed and then replaced with a new one. Either way, shouldn't make any difference to the two realities that first of all, this life is temporary and the coming kingdom is forever. And then that what you do in this world matters. 
It may be temporary, but what you do in this world matters for the next one. This world is not our final forever home. Please don't say that about your home. Oh, this is my forever home. No, it's not. Someday you're going to die. You're going to leave it all behind. Job said, I came naked into this world. I'm going to leave naked. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The last one. Or no, second last one, I think. Uh, steward rather than worship. Yes, second last. Steward rather than worship. So we don't worship the earth, but we take care of the earth because we are stewards of it. We are managers of it. We must keep that in mind and make sure we clarify that with people around us. That yes, we believe in taking care of the earth and respecting the earth and so on, but we're stewards of it. And the last one, live for what lasts. That's the final message from tonight. Live for what is going to last. The world, it's going to be replaced at some point. But living for the next one, living for the eternal kingdom is what lasts. So Jesus coming soon doesn't mean we sit down and do nothing and that what we do in this world is insignificant or doesn't matter. What we do in this world matters because it has eternal significance. So what we do on planet earth right now, live for what lasts. Second uh, Peter 3, I'll just leave with this text and then we'll pray. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I would only say in response to that, even so come Lord Jesus.